Well, in our previous lesson, two weeks ago, we learned how the Lord God had met Adam's need for beauty, aesthetic beauty in the world, and for food, and for water, and a very special place which he could call home. And all of these things were provided for him in a very special place called the Garden of Eden. And we also learned how God had met Adam's need for work, because work is necessary for man. And Adam was assigned the task of dressing and keeping that garden. Well, in this lesson, which is entitled, A Birthday Gift for Adam, taken from Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25, we will learn how God set about to meet another one of Adam's needs. And this was a very important need because it was his need for a wife. Adam didn't know he had this need at first, but he would soon find out. So we're going to talk about how God fulfilled Adam's need for a wife. The reason for the title is because, let me throw out this uh, trivia question. Who was the only man who was married on his birthday, the day of his birth? Not just his anniversary of his birthday. Who was the only man who was married and born on the same day? The answer, class, was Adam. And that's true. He was. That's something amazing, isn't it, to think about? Well, as we consider the final verses, then, of chapter 2, we are going to cover five subdivisions. We'll look at God's purpose for woman, God's preparation of Adam. He had to prepare Adam for the woman he was going to give her. God's production of woman, how he produced her, how he created her. God's presentation to Adam of the woman, which must have been a magnificent time in the life of Adam, as well as Eve, and then God's plan for marriage. And when we look at that, we'll look at the permanent. God's ideal for marriage is that it be permanent and that it be pure. So let's begin by looking at God's purpose for woman, Genesis 2:18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Here the first truth to mention about this verse, this important verse here, is that God himself planned woman, right? He is the one, the Lord God is the one who spoke in this verse. And he's not speaking to Adam here. So it would seem that then once again he is speaking to who? himself, right, within the Trinitarian Godhead, just as he did back in Genesis 1.26 when he said, let us make man in our image. So he's speaking to himself within his Trinity. So the creation of woman was not just some kind of a plan B after God realized that man would be lonely, that, that woman, it, woman wasn't some kind of an afterthought in the mind and the will and the plan of God, nor was she given less personal divine attention or thought than had been given to man. Woman was planned in the will, the mind, and the heart of all three of the Trinity members just as much as man had been. So woman, like man, was also made in the image and the likeness of God. And where did we learn this? Over in Genesis 1.27, where we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and what? And female created he them. Now man, although yet unaware of the fact, was incomplete without woman. 
We have to make a lot of men aware of this, don't we? (laughs) This was the original man that did not know he was incomplete without a woman. And according to the Lord God himself, this was not good. Right? Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. It was not good. God said that. It wasn't good that man was alone. Now, this doesn't mean that it was evil for man to be alone, but that God's plan for man was yet unfinished. And therefore, it was imperfect, imperfect, without woman. Not evil, you know, not good, but just not complete. When does God say that everything is very good? Only after the creation of woman. Before the creation of woman, everything was just good, 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 good. And we come into the picture, and yes, it's very good. (laughs) Oh. Woman was created then because it was not good for man to be by himself. It was not good for him to be alone, which means that man was incomplete and unfulfilled and he was deficient, standing all by himself in his Edenic home. Not only would man without woman be lonely in that he would not have a companion, a companion suitable for love and for comfort and all the rest that goes along with having companion, a, a spouse, but he would be unable to reproduce, and therefore Adam would have been the first and the last man <laughs> that this planet would have ever seen. Now, God, of course, knew this. He knew that man, Adam, needed an help meet, a companion in life, one who would be a suitable helper, and a friend, as well as a lover. Now, the word meet, M-E-E-T, in the Hebrew, is the word kenegdo. Can't really pronounce that very good, but it means literally suitable or fit or counterpart. Man, you see, was only half of God's plan for the human race. Woman was the other half. So God's basic big plan for the universe and for mankind was yet incomplete without the creation of woman. Woman was just as much a part of God's plan for human life as man was. And this is why God said that it was not good for man to be alone. So before Adam was even aware of his own incompleteness without a wife, God had anticipated Adam's need, and he had already planned for it. Eve, we could say, Eve was in the mind of God long before she was ever in the arms of Adam. So in summary, then, we could rightfully say that God planned woman to be the counterpart of man. She was to be of the very same nature as man, of the same equality as man, and she was to be suited perfectly to man, not only mentally, but morally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, every other way you can think of. There is, well, not completely physically, but the counterpart physically. Now, there is nothing in this divine plan for woman which suggests the superiority of man and the inferiority of woman. There's nothing in the plan that suggests that. Both were planned by God and both were personally created by him in his own image and likeness. The concept that women are somehow inferior to men is a concept which does not come from the scripture. The Christian faith, over all other faiths, elevates woman. 
So you don't find women being inferior anywhere in the scripture. Yes, they have different roles to play, but they are not inferior. Instead, that kind of thinking, that philosophy, comes from the sinful minds and hearts of humanity and society. So Adam and Eve were created to be the first parents of the human race. They were to work together side by side. They were to be companions as well as intimate lovers. They were to help each other in every conceivable way that they could, putting the needs of the other one first above their own needs. As the parents of humanity, they were also to be the example of what God wanted for the human race to be, which is one family, all members of God's family. God's ideal for the human race was that it should live together in love and peace and harmony and joy, you know, the the union of a loving family. So again, we discover here more of the grace and more of the fatherly love and concern of God for man. Adam, as we've said, was not even yet aware of his need for a female companion at this point in time. Remember now, this is still the sixth day of creation. Chapter 2 just goes back over some of the additional details that we had learned in chapter 1. So we're now still here talking about the sixth day of the creation week. So Adam didn't know that he had a need for a wife. God was all that Adam knew at this point. And God was sufficient for Adam. However, God, you see, knew that Adam was not sufficient for his own purposes, for God's own purposes. God knew that Adam needed a wife in order to make the human race even possible and to make the human race complete. Now, the fact of the matter is, however, that when and if we are in circumstances which cause us to be alone without a spouse, then God is sufficient, isn't he? He is. And he will make his presence enough. God was initially enough for Adam, although Adam wasn't enough for God's purposes for the world. God has promised that he would be a husband to the widow and that he would be a father to the orphan. And he has promised to be with those who are his, promised to be with us always, even unto the end of the world. And he has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. It even says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if if God has given you a particular gift, that it's better if you remain single because then you can serve him unhindered. You can serve the Lord better if you're single. And we know, too, that because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he sees our needs even before we see them sometime. You know, he saw Adam's need before Adam even knew about it. And so this is a wonderful picture, then, again, of fatherly love and concern. It says in Philippians 4.19, you all know it, but my God shall supply all your, what, need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Well, in order to make Adam aware of his need for a spouse, a suitable help meet in his life, God had a plan. And this plan involved the animals, strangely. But it did, and also the birds. So let's look at verses 19 and 20 to learn how God prepared Adam for the great gift, the birthday gift, he was going to present to him. 
19 and 20. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. In order to deliberately foster in Adam a sense of his need for human companionship, particularly his need for a wife, the Lord God assigned Adam the task of naming all the animals. Now, many have wondered why the scripture here in verse um, 18, the one we just looked at, why that verse discusses God's plan to make woman and then suddenly switches to the subject of Adam naming all the animals. You know, people have said, well, that seems to be really weird. Why, why does that take place here? And the reason for this is really very clear. God would use the animals who we can assume came to Adam in male and female pairs. He would use those, God would use those animals to show man, Adam, his great need for a woman, for a companion, just like himself. Well, almost, just like himself. <laughs> so all of the animals, we know, had been made in male and female uh, sexes. Otherwise, God couldn't have commanded them to reproduce after their own kinds, right? So they're all in male and female um, pairs. Only man, at first, was created alone without his counterpart companion. Now, there are rich and there are even very symbolic meanings for God having created man first and then woman. You know, apart from with the animals and the birds and everything else, he created both male and female. Well, there's some rich symbolic meanings for why God did this. And, uh, and there are some very important purposes behind why he did this. And we'll discuss some of these as we get further into the uh, lesson this morning. And it was God, of course who brought the animals to Adam, just as later on God would bring the animals to who? To Noah, for safety in Noah's ark. Because God is the creator of everything, he certainly has the power to get animals to do his bidding. He, had, he would have no problem in getting the animals to go to Adam to be named. You know, he, Adam's uh, animals have no problem in obeying God. The only ones that have problem in obeying God are man. So the animals were very willing to do God's bidding. And we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, manifested himself as God because he also had authority, supreme authority over the animal realm, didn't he? Couldn't he make fish jump into nets if he wanted them to? Couldn't he make a certain fish swallow a particular coin so that Peter could pay his taxes to Caesar? And didn't he ride an, uh, an unridden colt of a donkey that would, you know, for the first time would have bolted and it would have been impossible for a normal man to just get on an unridden donkey? And wasn't he in the wilderness being tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights? And doesn't the scripture say there were wild animals out there and yet none of them harmed him? We know that the Lord Jesus had authority, divine authority, proving he was God over the animals. Now, it is not known, since the scripture here doesn't tell us, we don't know if all the animals of the earth went to Adam. Some say that it was only the animals and the birds which were living in the Garden of Eden 
which were brought to Adam for naming. And yet that really doesn't seem to be the implication here. Verse 19 tells us that every beast of the field and every fowl of the air were brought to Adam, while verse 20 tells us that Adam gave names, notice, to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. Now, it may not have been until after this naming process that the animals were then scattered across the land mass or land masses of the earth. Remember, we don't know if there was one land mass or if there were more than one. Um, but maybe it wasn't until after this naming process that they then scattered across the earth. Because remember, this is the sixth day. What day were the animals created? On the sixth day. So they could very well still be hanging around. And uh, the birds, too. The birds were created just the day before. Therefore, Adam's naming of the animals occurred on the very first, the very same day as the... Of, of their creation. Here's the sequence. The animals were created. This is all day six. The animals were created. Then Adam was created. And then God prepared the Garden of Eden and placed Adam in it. That's still the sixth day. Then Adam was given the assignment of naming all the animals. And then still on the sixth day, who was created? Eve. And then you can go over back to chapter one and look at verse 28. Then God blessed them. That would be the next event. God blessed them, and then he gave both of them the commandment to be fruitful and, and multiply and replenish the earth. And then he gave both of them dominion over all the, the animals of the earth. So that's the sequence we have here between these two chapters. Now, we should notice that God did not bring the water creatures or the creeping things to Adam for naming because this task would have probably taken far too long and have carried Adam on into the next day, the seventh day, which God had already you know, figured out was going to be the day of rest. Plus, it would not have been practical to bring the whales and the fish to Adam who was sitting there on land, right? How would God have managed to do that? To bring, I mean, he could have if he wanted to, but we are not told here that Adam named the water creatures. We're not told that he named the creeping things. Furthermore, there may also be some significance in the fact that we are told that Adam named the beasts, notice this, of the field. If you look there, it says the beasts of the field in verses 19 and 20. And that differs, if you go back to Genesis 1.24, this differs from the title, the beasts of the um, earth which is used in 124. So perhaps, and I don't know, I can't be dogmatic, but perhaps this somehow indicates that some of the animals of the earth were not named by Adam on that first day of his creation, on day six. We don't know. We just don't know. Perhaps the other animals and the fish and the whales and the creeping things were named by him later on, you know, on other days of his life perhaps even after he was cast from the Garden of Eden. Or perhaps they were left, some of them were left for his descendants to name. We just really don't know. But what we do know is that even just the naming of the beasts of the field and of every fowl of the air and all the cattle, which could speak of all the domesticated kinds of animals, 
that even just that was quite a chore for Adam. Now, we have no way of knowing exactly how many kinds of animals this would involve because a lot lot of original animals have since become extinct. So we don't know how many kinds were brought to Adam, but it was not such a tremendous number that he could not examine them and then arrive at suitable names within a few hours. It has been figured that Adam, who, remember now, had a supreme intelligence because this was before the fall and he had, he had uh, the capability of using 100% of his brain cells, and we only use like one-tenth or even less of ours, that he could have, some, he could have named some 3,000 kinds of creatures in about five hours' time. In assigning Adam this task, God had a twofold purpose. He was not only exercising Adam um, intellectually, you know, Adam had this fantastic brain, and now he was being um, able to, he was, this was his first assignment, this was his first homework assignment, and so he was putting that brain into use. But he was, God was also, he also used this task to energize Adam emotionally. So he was exercising him intellectually and he was energizing him emotionally. As Adam would name each creature, he would not be able to help but notice, to be made acutely aware of the fact that each animal had a mate. I imagine, you know, as we said, they came in pairs, male and female, and he couldn't help but notice that he alone, he alone of all the creatures, was alone. He, and he would be impressed also, not only in the fact that he was alone without a female companion, but he would be impressed by his own uniqueness. He would be brought to the realization that he was superior to all these animals in several aspects. First of all, he would have realized that he was superior to the animals in his authority that he actually had dominion. Now, he hadn't been told he had dominion yet, okay? He wasn't told that until he was with Eve, and we go over to Genesis 1.28, and then we find out that Adam and Eve were both told they had dominion over the animals. But here, in this assignment, Adam would be learning that he was superior to these creatures because he had authority over them and dominion over them. God brought the animals to Adam. He did not bring Adam to the animals so that the animals could... Think of a name for Adam, right? Furthermore, Adam named the animals. The animals did not name Adam. So God would tell Adam and Eve that they would have dominion over the animal world later on, and therefore he turned early on, he turned the animals over to Adam, even on the very first day of their creation, so that Adam could immediately begin to exercise that authority that was given to him by God. Now, Adam would also realize that he had superiority over the animals in his intelligence. The Hebrew words for calling and naming that we find in verses 19 and 20 give, give us the idea or they involve the idea of concentrated thought and study. So Adam, you see, was to not just say, um, oh, your name's going to be giraffe, your name's going to be this, your name's going to be that whatever his names were, those are our English names, you know. He didn't just flippantly give them names. He actually concentrated on each one, looked at its attributes, you know, and, and, and assigned it a name which was fit to its character and its 
appearance or whatever he judged it all on. And to do this within a matter of hours took a man of high superior intelligence and very quick discernment. And we notice, too, that no second thoughts about those names, those assigned names, or changes in the names is ever indicated. Because the scripture tells us very clearly, and whatsoever Adam called every living thing or every living creature, that was the name thereof. So he, he perfectly assigned the names to the animals, and he didn't have any changes, no second thoughts, and he didn't ever change their names. What he called them, that was the name thereof. And lastly, Adam would have come to the realization that he was a superior being over the animals. Man is a spiritual being. As Adam began his first association with the animals, he would realize that none of them could fill his need for a spiritual companion like himself. They may have been formed from the ground of the earth just like himself, yet there was none in all those creatures and the birds which could provide him with spiritual fellowship and companionship. And we have talked about this in a previous lesson. Although there is a close association of man with the animals, there is also a vast difference between man and the animals. They can, man and animal, can to some degree communicate. Maybe they could communicate even more, I'm sure, before the fall, but even today we can communicate to some degree with animals. We can play with the animals, and particularly before the world was cursed, I'm sure Adam could play with all the animals, you know, even pet the lions and tigers. But the animal can never raise itself to meet man on his level, on man's level. If Adam was, as some would tell us, therefore, if Adam was the product of animal evolution, then surely, as he was reviewing all of these animals, could he not have found some companionship with some female apish-like creature, you know, some transitional creature, a hominid form, uh, that was very closely related to him, if Adam had come from the animals, as evolutionism would have told us. He could have found some very closely related female ape that he could have found companionship with. But in all of the animal kingdom, he found that he was uniquely superior and alone. There was no female companion for him. And according to God, this was what? Not good. Not good. Before God, then, could declare his creation to be very good, as he did at the end of the sixth day, he had to provide a helper and a companion for Adam, one like Adam who would be perfectly uh, suitable for Adam. He would compl- she would complement man, and also she would complete God's creative works. God's purpose behind his method of creating man first and then woman and bringing before man all of the animal creatures was then to show Adam his great need for woman. This whole process, if you think about it, would have been bound to have made a tremendous impact on Adam and it would have caused him to love and appreciate his wife far more when he finally got her than if God had just simply created her at the very same time that he created Adam. Is this not true? 
Don't you appreciate something more when you realize you have a need for it and then it is given to you? Of course you do. So God was very wise in doing this. By the time that God created Eve, which was later on, on the sixth day, Adam was actually longing for her. He had come, you see, to realize his need for her, and this would cause him to appreciate her so much more and to cherish her so much more than he otherwise would have. Well, God never awakens a desire within an individual that he cannot or will not satisfy in his own way and on his own time schedule. Far too often we find that our problem is that we are impatient and we are impulsive, and therefore we go about trying to satisfy an inner desire in our own way, right, and on our own time schedule rather than waiting on him. But we must remember um, that true and lasting fulfillment comes when we allow God to lead and when we allow, allow God to fulfill in our lives. If he's awakened a desire within you, he will fulfill that desire in his own time, in his own way. And this is something, as I thought about it, that our young people especially need to learn in regard to the subject of marriage. I've been dealing with this with one of my daughters. You know, it's, it's tough when you get to be around 21 years old and you start thinking, oh, there's not going to be anybody for me. And you might make some wrong decisions and some wrong choices unless you're really waiting on the Lord. In the sex-inflamed world that we live in, it is very difficult these days for young people to remain pure and to remain patient and to wait on God to make his will perfectly clear to them in the matter of marriage. Because everything in our society seems to to um, fight against this, doesn't it? It does. I mean, you know, it fights against the divine ideal. Yet those Christian young people and even older people who will wait on God and will keep themselves pure uh, will be so much more richly blessed than if they get impatient and try to do things in their own way. They'll be so much more blessed, and they, and they will truly then appreciate and cherish the spouse that God gives to them so much more, just as we learn Adam did. Okay, let's move on to God's production of woman in verses 21 and the first part of verse 22. God's production of woman. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he, meaning God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. The biblical record of God's creation of woman here presents one of the greatest dilemmas, one of the greatest problems or snags for those who propose theistic evolutionism, for those who say, yes, God created everything, but he used the method of evolution to do so. This creation of woman really gives them a a terrible problem. Because although an individual who says that he believes the Bible, 
Although that particular person may be able to reason with himself, I don't agree with him, but he may be able to rationalize somehow that man evolved from some kind of an ape-like ancestor and that this is what the scripture means when it says that Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth, yet this same person will give himself a tremendous headache trying to figure out how he is going to compromise the Bible's account of the creation of Eve with evolutionism. I mean, it's impossible to, to compromise the fact that Eve was created from the body of Adam, out of a rib, or the side of Adam. You, it either has to be true or it is false. You cannot compromise that with evolutionism. And the situation gets even worse for the theistic evolutionist when he or she tries to explain the New Testament teaching which very clearly supports the Genesis account of woman's creation. It says in 1 Timothy 2.13, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. You know, they didn't evolve from the animals both together, parallel at the same time. First Adam came, and then Eve. That does not work in evolution. You can't have some kind of tremendous mutation out of the side of a man to, to make a woman. All science mitigates against that. It also tells us in 1 Corinthians 11:8, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Which came first, man or woman? Just like which came first, the chicken or the egg? You, I, you know the answer. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken. Which came first, man or woman? The man. No problem if you believe the Bible. Well, the manner in which God created Eve may have been used you know, by God to baffle and to disrupt the compromisers who want to try to ride the fence between creationism and evolutionism, but God's method also had a lot of symbolic meaning. Now, he certainly, and we'll talk about this, he certainly could have created Eve out of the dust of the ground, just as he had with Adam, couldn't he? I mean, he could have done it that way very easily. But instead, God formed her from the body of Adam so that Adam's life actually became her life. And so we can assume that God had very good reasons for doing this, you know, for creating Eve in this very unusual manner. In fact, from the New Testament, we learned that there are some great spiritual truths pictured in Eve's creation. And there was also the instantly understood truth that Adam and Eve were truly one flesh. God was demonstrating here the oneness which he desires between husband and wife as they not only live together, but as they worship together, as they serve together, and as they raise their family together. So after parading all the animals before Adam for name classification, and to arouse in Adam a desire for a mate of his own likeness, then it tells us that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. That's what it says in verse 21. Now, the Hebrew word for slept, tardama, speaks of a very, very deep sleep. While Adam slept in this deepest, deepest of sleeps, God did what? He removed a rib in the first surgical operation that we find in the Bible. Now, just a little side comment here. 
Some people have wondered, I've even heard this question. They say, well, if the Bible is true, then why do men have 24 ribs just like women? Wouldn't men have 23 ribs and women have 24? Well, that's really a very stupid (laughs) argument because of the modern science of genetics, not because of it, but, but having learned about the modern science of genetics, we know that acquired characteristics are never passed along to offspring. So, in other words, like if Adam had lost an arm later on after the, after the fall and he was fighting with a wild lion, okay, and he lost an arm, would that mean that his children, Cain and Abel, would both be born without an arm? Of course not. So even if God, you know, well, he did take a rib, that doesn't mean that Adam and Eve's children would be born with 23 ribs because that is an acquired characteristics. Furthermore, and this doesn't even matter, but I just thought I would throw this out because it's interesting, um, they have discovered by thoracic surgery that if the periosteum, which is a fibrous covering of the rib, if it is split in order to remove the bony rib, but the periosteum is left in place, that that rib will actually grow back. And that is the only bone in the body which will do that. So just throw that out because that's interesting. Well, now, since God did not put Adam into this deep, deep sleep, so as to reduce, yeah, this was new to me, I, I don't know why I'd never thought of this before, but he didn't put him in that kind of comatose type of sleep so as to reduce his knowledge of pain. He didn't do that for pain because guess what? This is before the fall and there was no pain or suffering in the world before the, the, the fall. Um, just like as if, if Eve had had Her children before the fall, there would have been no pain in delivery and childbirth. So there was no pain. He didn't put him into the coma because, uh, you know, to reduce the pain. So, therefore, we can reasonably speculate that there must have been another reason for doing this. There must have been some kind of a spiritual picture uh, for our benefit in this action. And I believe that there is a great spiritual truth for us to glean from this action, and it is a truth which prefigured the, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the deep, deep sleep of Adam was a picture of death. Now, Adam, of course, did not die because there was no death on earth before the fall, but his deep sleep was a picture of death. It was as though Adam died so that he could obtain a bride to share in his own life. And, of course, from our side of Calvary, we can look back at this beautiful act of the creation of Eve, and we can see a type, a prophetic type, a picture of the death of Christ so that he could obtain his bride, the church. So it's a beautiful picture here. Woman was made from a rib, Now, the actual Hebrew word is tsela, T-S-E-L-A. She was made from a tsela of man. And it's interesting that the word tsela appears 35 times in the Old Testament. And 34 of those times, it is translated as side. Side instead of rib. 
Now, what is the significance of this? Well, Matthew Henry, who has been quoted many, many times on this, and I'm sure you've all heard it before, he has said that woman was not taken from Adam's head so that she could rule over him as his superior, nor was woman taken from man's feet to be trampled upon as his inferior, but woman was taken from man's side because she was to be both his equal and his companion. Woman you see, was created from that part of man's body which was closest to his heart. Because woman brings so much meaning and so much love into a man's life. She brings him warmth and comfort and tenderness and encouragement, doesn't she? Or at least she should. (laughs) Now, these thoughts then once again should remind us of who? The Lord Jesus Christ, whose side was pierced on the cross of Calvary following, of course, his death. And that, when he was pierced with that spear in his side, what, what flowed out? Blood and water. His precious, sinless, shed blood is what gives life to those who make up his church, his bride. The water of his word is what cleanses his bride so that when she will be presented to him, when the church will be presented to Christ, just as when Eve was presented by God to Adam, she, the church, will be without spot and blemish, just as Eve was perfectly sinless and in perfection. When we are one day as the church presented to Christ, we will be without spot, right? We will be perfect because we will be just like him just as Eve was just like Adam. And the church will, you see, the church will be the extension of his own life, of Christ's own life, just as Eve was the extension of Adam's own life. And the church will be in perfect union with Christ, just as Eve at first was in perfect union with her husband. Now, even even now, individually, when we accept Christ, we receive our life, our eternal life, by way of his shed blood. As Eve was born from Adam's life and his symbolic death in that deep sleep, and as she was flesh of Adam's flesh and bone of Adam's bones, we are born again of Christ's life and his actual death. And it tells us this in Ephesians 5.30, that we actually become members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So I'm not just making up this picture. This picture is a true type which is presented to us in the New Testament. So Adam and Eve give to us a beautiful picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. Now we are told in Genesis 1.27, as we mentioned before, that both man and uh, woman, male and female, were both created in the image and the likeness of God. So woman was no less made in the image of God than man. She was made out of of man's need, so it was appropriate that she was to come out of man's being. Woman was also to be, as we'll read in a little while, she was to be the object of man's cleaving. You know, you're to leave and cleave. She was to be the object of his cleaving, and therefore it was appropriate that she was made also out of man's being, because this would cause a natural cleaving 
between man and woman, a natural clinging, a reaching out for one another's being and one another's flesh because they came from the same flesh. Furthermore, woman was, as I said, to be one flesh with man within the institution of marriage, and therefore she was made out of the very flesh of man so that man and woman would have identical natures, and yet they would be counterparts to one another. And last but not least, woman was made out of man's flesh so that they could both, or they would both cherish and nourish one another. You know, no person usually, no person hates their own flesh. And instead, most, most of us take care of our flesh. You know, we, we pamper our flesh. We try to get it to last as long as we possibly can. And so this would cause them to, you know, man and woman to both take care of one another. It says in the scripture, Ephesians 5, 28 to 29, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Woman is absolutely the glory and the crown of all creation. She was the final act of the creation week. She was the being who brought glory to man. And man, of course, as we've mentioned, man was the apex of God's creation. Woman is the being who brings more refinement to this world than any other creature. She is therefore both the crown and the glory of man and of nature. I mean, who's the one who goes out and cuts the pretty flowers and brings them in the house and fixes the house up to make it look pretty? Woman. The animals, now think about this. The animals were created out of the ground of the earth, right? They were created first out of the ground of the earth. Then man, who came after the animals, was also created out of the the ground of the earth, but he was created directly and personally by God himself, and God breathed his own breath of life into man. So man was more excellent, and he was of more dignity and honor than the animals. However, woman was created even after man, and she was not taken from the dust of the earth, but she was taken out of man himself. Therefore, woman was both of God and of man. So woman's creation may be said to be even more excellent and more glorious than man's creation because she was twice removed from the dust of the ground. She was created in order to bring more refinement and beauty and glory to this earth. And if you think I'm stretching all of this and saying, well, you're just saying that because you're a woman, Catherine, read the words of 1 Corinthians 11:7, where the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words, the woman is the glory of man. And yet, this in no wise, in no wise means that women are better than man. You know, I am not a woman's liber by any means. No way. We are no better than man, just as man is in no wise better than woman, simply because he was made first. Scripture says the first will be last anyway, right? (laughs) But the fact... Uh, the fact, this fact that man was made first was purposed by God so as to establish a pattern 
for marriage and for family. Although man and woman are both equal in God's eyes, and they should be also in each other's eyes, they should be equal, yet they do have different roles to perform within the marriage and within the family and within society. God arranged for man to be first in order in the order of the family and society, and then woman and then the children. You see, God knew that if there is to be order within any structure or within any organization, someone has to be the leader. Someone has to be first. Someone has to be the head of that structure or organization. Just like within the church, we have to have a head, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the head. And yet the scripture clearly presents instructions to the head that true order and true leadership are not found in domination, you know, and do this and do that and all that sort of thing, but in voluntary submissiveness and in love, unconditional love. And isn't that exactly how Christ, you know, he gave himself for the church. It says in Ephesians 5.25, husband Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And it says in 1 Peter 3.1, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your husbands. Remember, in being in subjection and in being in submission to our husbands, that does not make us inferior creatures. It, we are presenting to the world who is looking, which is looking, we are presenting a beautiful picture of the relationship that the church has with its Savior, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, think about what kind of a wife are you? Remember the seven churches that we looked at? Think of yourself as a church. Are you a lost-your-first-love kind of a church? Are you in name only a wife but dead? Or is your, wife, is your husband standing on the outside of your marriage trying to get in, as in the Laodicean kind of church? Or are you a, a good wife, you know, the kind of wife you should be, a Philadelphian, loving kind of a wife? Well, we've seen that woman was created for man, and she was created out of man, and next we're going to see how she was presented to man. So let's look at uh, verses 22 and 23. I've already read 22, but I'll read it again. This is God's presentation to Adam. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's interesting to notice that Adam, even after becoming acutely aware, I'm having coming acutely aware of his desire for a helpmate, thank you. Now he's aware, okay? He's looked at all these male and female animals and, and birds, and now he knows that he doesn't have a female counterpart. But does he complain to God? Does he say, you know, why, Lord, did you make all the animals? in male and female pairs, and why did you leave me all by myself, all by my little lonesome? And he didn't go crawl under a tree somewhere and sulk, you know, in order to show God his anger or his frustration. Why did Adam not respond like this? Well, because Adam was sinless. 
This was before the fall. He fully trusted God's will and God's timing for him. We could say then that that Adam went to sleep in the will of the Lord. He quietly left the situation in God's hands, and God satisfied that awakened desire of Adam's heart. And that desire, God was the one who fostered that. So, of course, if he fosters a desire, he's going to meet the desire. And we need to remember to do the same as Adam. You know, if we have a a desire, we just need to go to sleep in the will of the Lord and know that he will take care of it in his own way and his own will. Well, after God had finished forming Eve and brought her to Adam, don't you know that it must have been a great moment in time for all three of them? Not only Adam and Eve, but God, too. And it was at this point, actually, that God then looked upon his creation... And declared everything to be very good. It's kind of like when you're at a wedding ceremony. Don't you just love going to to Christian weddings? I love them. I always cry when the bride walks up, and I always love it to see the the, the man up there as he's looking at his bride coming down, and the glow on both of their faces, and and uh, it, it it just it's very good, isn't it? And that's what God said. It was very good. And we can be sure that Adam fully agreed with God when his awakening eyes beheld the splendor and the radiance of the creature who was standing before him because Eve was the only woman who was ever born. I guess we could call her being born out of a man. She was the only woman to ever exist without a sin nature. The only one. And so, therefore, don't you know that she must have been absolutely spectacular in her beauty? Just gorgeous, beyond what we could imagine. And after looking at orangutans and hippopotamuses and rhinoceri (laughs) all day long, all kinds of strange and exotic furry and feathery creatures... Adam must have just fallen instantly in love with this smooth-skinned, two-legged, upright human female that God had created for him out of his very own flesh and blood. You see, Adam knew instantly that she was his better half, (laughs) that she was his other half. So the first two human beings standing there, before one another, you know, can't you imagine? Frank asked me this morning, he said, well, how did Adam know that she wasn't another animal? And I said, <laughs> I said, she probably winked at him and smiled. <laughs> and his little heart went to a fluttering. But don't you know that must have been one of the most dramatic and thrilling moments of human history, not only for them, but for God. And he was there. He was present. He's the one who presented Eve to Adam. And don't you know that in like manner, it will also be one of the most dramatic and thrilling moments of all human history when God, who is even yet still forming a bride out of the side of his beloved son, you know, still forming that bride, when God will have finished forming her and will bring her to him to the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, and she will be forevermore joined to him. Beautiful picture there. Adam had known. Now, some people wonder, did Adam know what was going to be done to him? If he had known, would he have agreed, you know, to have his side torn open and 
Adam obviously knew what God was going to do. God must have explained it to him. Because as soon as he woke up and looked at Eve, what did he say? He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He knew what God had done. And then, since he had gotten used to naming all kinds of creatures all day long, he named (laughs) the lovely creature standing before him. And what did he name her? Whoa, man! (laughs) That's my own version. He named her woman because she was taken out of man. Now, the Hebrew word used for woman here in verse 23 is isha. And the Hebrew word used for man is ish. It's not the same word that we've been looking at for man, which was Adam. Remember? Up till here, it's been Adam. That's the Hebrew word for man. Now the word is ish, and the, and the word for woman is isha. Um, woman comes from wom, womb, man. All right? Womb. Womb, <laughs> man. Because she was taken out of the very body of man, came out of, so to speak, the womb of man. So think about this one. The only man who ever gave birth to a woman was Adam. And Adam had never known a woman. He was a virgin, wasn't he? He had never known a woman, and yet he gave birth to a woman. Now, the only man who was ever birthed from a virgin woman was the second Adam, and she had never known a man, and yet she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Isn't that neat? Yes, that's neat. All right, let's look at God's plan for marriage real quick, verses 24 and 25. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and they shall cleave and shall cleave unto his wife. See, we know they were married, because what do you see here all of a sudden? Wife. And they shall cleave, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Two things God wants ideally for all marriages: permanence and purity. And you'll see what I mean by purity. What follows here in verse 24 is the classic text establishing the divinely intended nature of marriage. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. The first institution ever established upon earth was what? The institution of marriage. And it was established by whom? By God, not by man. It was established by God himself. He was present, wasn't he? He was there. He's the one who presented. He was the father giving away the bride. He presented Eve to Adam. And he should ideally be present at every marriage, shouldn't he? To to make a godly, true marriage, it takes three. The husband, or the groom, the bride, and God, or Lord Jesus Christ. What was the very first miracle that Jesus performed? Or where was it? Wasn't it at? A marriage? I mean, he saved the day for that marriage. So he was, he was also so pointing out the great significance that God places on the institution of marriage. It was the first institution and it was the first miracle that the Lord ever performed. The Lord Jesus' own teaching on marriage came from this very account we have here in Genesis chapter 2. And this tells us, therefore, that Christ did not regard Adam and Eve as mythological or allegorical figures. 
He was basing the whole, his whole marriage teaching on them. He considered them to be literal historical figures, the parents of the human race. Furthermore, in his teaching on marriage, he quoted from both chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 2. You can see that in your notes. I'm going to skip over it for now because of time's sake. But he was giving his stamp of approval on both of these chapters, which many skeptics have said have contradicted one another. He, he knew that ahead of time, so therefore he went ahead and, and, <clears throat> and approved of both of them, gave his authority to both chapters. So, uh, so those who regard the account of Adam and Eve as being anything other than literal are are those who actually find themselves in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very difficult to say that you believe in Christ and then not believe what he teaches about Adam and Eve. The integrity and the permanence of marriage and the home is so very important to God that he made it clear from the very beginning that it was to be permanent until death. When men and women are joined together in marriage, God's word tells us that they have become one, what? One flesh. They do not sever from one another. They are one body. He is to be hers and she is to be his. So much so that they are actually one person, although, of course, distinct, different personalities, but one person. There is to be a leaving and a cleaving situation in marriage. The groom and the bride are to separate from their parents and no longer cleave to them as they had when they were children. Their new family unit is to be with one another. They are no longer to cleave to their parents, but they are to cleave to one another. They are no longer subject to their parents, but they are subject to one another. And this, of course, does not mean that they are not to um, honor their parents. They are never to stop honoring their parents. And it doesn't mean that they have to leave their parents and they can never see them again. Of course not. But it is simply that their first priority is now to their spouse and to their subsequent children. Of course, as with everything else, sinful man has corrupted this divine ideal, the divine... um, plan God had for the institution of marriage, and he has added all kinds of his own inventions, such as polygamy, having many wives, or polyandry, having many husbands, can you imagine that, Um, divorce, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and all kinds of other distortions. However, as the Lord Jesus himself stated, In Matthew 19, 8, from the beginning, it was not so. Anything else is disobedience. True blessings from God always come to those who are obedient to his word. Disobedience, therefore, cannot bring his blessing. It brings what? The consequences of sin. Now, even though, of course, God forgives those who have, you know, been disobedient and have repented of that disobedience, yet, as we all know, people still must live with the consequences of their disobedience. The institution of monogamous marriage, you know, one man, one woman for a lifetime, and the family 
as the primary factor for the continuation of the human race and the training of children is so common, it is so familiar to all peoples and all races and all nationalities and all generations down through history that really seldom does anyone stop to think how or why such a custom came into existence. You know, where did marriage come from? People just kind of take it for granted, marriage in the family. It cannot be a product of evolution because it is not habitual with primates or mammals. In fact, it is, as Paul declared, the Apostle Paul, it is a mystery, just as the church was a mystery. He says that the the marriage and the family is a great mystery. One of the reasons for the great importance which God does place upon the institution of marriage is, as we said, that it is to be an earthly picture and pattern of the spiritual relationship between Christ and his church. In Ephesians 5, which I keep going back to, Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33, Christian husbands are told that they are to love their wives with a sacrificial, protective perfecting love, such as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. And wives are told to what? Reverence their husbands and to be submissive to them as the church is to reverence and obey the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. So remember that next time you might have trouble. I mean, I face this battle all the time. You might have trouble submitting to your husband sometimes. But remember that when you do, you are a picture of the church submitting to Christ. And when you submit, he'll treat you so much better in the long run. Things will go so much more smoothly. So a godly, joyful Christian marriage and family serve as a great testimony to the authority and to the truth of the scripture. And of course then to the author of the scripture. In those families where God is honored... And where his word is believed and obeyed, the love of the husband and the wife and the children is actually showing forth the eternal love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as well as showing forth the redeeming love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church. So, what therefore man hath joined together, let not man put asunder. I don't know if anybody is thinking of divorce. I certainly hope not. But if you're in a situation now where you're even contemplating it, do not do it. Do not do it. You will take yourself out from under God's blessings. You will put yourself into a position of disobedience, and he cannot, he cannot bless disobedience. If you have already experienced divorce, then you just remain true to whoever you're married to now, or you remain single, and you repent, and you go from here. And you know that he has forgiven you if you've asked for forgiveness and you start fresh. But you just also know that you have to live with the consequences of your one-time disobedience. We, okay, let's look at purity as the second. God's ideal for marriage is permanence and purity. <clears throat> and purity we find in verse 25. Before the entrance of sin into the world, man and woman stood before one another in perfect purity and innocence, and therefore they knew no shame whatsoever. Some believed that they were actually clothed in the radiance of God's light, you know, like Moses 
Remember, his face just shone with the glory and the radiance of of, uh, God after he had been in God's presence on Mount Sinai. So some believe that they were clothed in God's light. Adam and Eve did not need clothing. They did not need physical covering because they were sinless, and they didn't even know what shame and you know sin were. There was absolutely nothing at all for them to be embarrassed about with one another because also they were one flesh. The woman had come from the body of man. Furthermore, their nakedness can also speak about their transparency with one another, their purity with one another not just on the physical realm, but also on all the other realms. They had nothing at all to hide from one another or to be ashamed of with one another in regard to their thoughts or their emotions. You know, if they fell instantly in love, they didn't have any shame over showing it to one another. And ideally, this is how all marriages should be. Husband and wife should have absolutely no embarrassment with one another in any realm whatsoever. They should feel comfortable expressing any thoughts or any emotions at all with one another. They should be totally transparent with one another, pure with one another. No hidden secrets, no hidden closets, open. But this is difficult, isn't it? Because we don't live in a sinless world anymore. We uh, don't live with perfect husbands either, do we? (laughs) And so it is very difficult to be totally transparent in a lot of situations. However, through Christ, if you are a born-again believer, through Christ, it is possible. And if your husband especially is also born again. Of course, if he isn't, it's very, very difficult. And there you have to follow the 1 Peter 3. passage where you just don't nag him but you let your light so shine before him that he sees your good works and he eventually comes to the Lord Jesus Christ through your silent witness keyword silent witness but this was the ideal plan for marriage as designed by our creator because he did not create and institute anything which was not very good so everything initially was very good. Tragically, however, we know that this situation of exceeding goodness was not to last for very long, was it? Because when you come back next week, we are going to see that Satan fell and somehow or another he has slipped and slipped his way into the Garden of Eden and he immediately begins to spoil the relationship between God and man and between man and woman right away, and uh, that's what we'll look at, Lord willing, when we come back next week.